This week's show is brought to you by Horizon Books in Capitol Hill, serving Seattle book lovers for 47 years with one of the largest and finest used book collections in the city. Mention UpZones at the register this week for a 10% discount. Our sponsor is Horizon Books, and this is UpZones. You have to elect yourself daily. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself Things are changing. You elect yourself. You elect yourself. Happy Monday, Upzonians. This is Ian. This week we have the Halima Barucha an amazing student activist. She seems to be making headlines just about everywhere she goes with her activism regarding anti-Islamophobia and gender justice. We'll get to her a little bit later. Last week was our first episode. I, I wanted to spare everyone the time and I didn't really do an intro, but I think I just wanted to let everyone know that we've got some real special people lined up over the coming months and this is going to be a fun show for me to do. On a sadder note, I I said goodbye to my grandfather this past week. My, my grandfather, Floyd Chavois, died passed away he uh i got everything from him man just my sense of humor my inappropriate wildly wildly inappropriate sense of humor you know he met my uh he met my fiance just a few months back finally he was very ill she came to say hi i said hey do you want to meet michelle he said does she have any money it's just sort of how he was but the thing that i take forward with me now that he's moved on is that there's a lot of reasons that he could have pointed to in his life to be, well, frankly, kind of an asshole. He, uh, he's you know, white guy, um, step-grandfather. Um, <clears throat> lost his job in a trade mostly due to technology and globalization changes. Had eight kids and three kids, five stepkids with my, my grandmother. Um, and never blamed anyone. Never blamed brown people. Never blamed women. Was just as excited and, and happy for the accomplishments of his little brown grandson as he would have been for anyone else. Never became a Trump voter. And I just, I don't have much more to say. And I apologize for running on. But um, I think if I can do anything in the next couple months on this podcast, and maybe it's share the experiences of people who are doing the same thing and, and don't blame other folks for their down times and their misfortunes and, and are actually actively working to make life a little better. Anyway, Halima Barucha, amazing student activist. I cannot wait for y'all to listen. We did have some technical problems with my microphone in the live interview, but you know what? Her voice came through loud and clear, and that's all that really matters. You'll hear what I'm saying. You'll hear what she's saying even better. Halima. for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Let, let me just jump in. So you grew up in enemy territory mm -hmm. right, in uh, <laughs> Santa Clara, California, home yeah. of the dreaded 49. <laughs> you lived there your whole life? Mostly, yeah. I'm from, I grew up in Fremont for like four years. I came to Santa Clara, lived in the same apartment complex for many years, and we finally moved to a house, and we've been there for a long time. So yeah, pretty much the same area. And the apartment complex was... Talk, to, talk me through because I'm an apartment complex okay. myself. So, okay. <laughs> so the, the, the apartments have very different uh, characters and dimensions. Yeah. So, tell me about it. 
I guess um, the Santa Clara area, the city that I grew up in, is pretty much upper middle class, except for nobody talks about it. And it's kind of very quiet in terms of organizing. So Seattle has been like very new for me. A lot of action, a lot of movement and a lot of conversation about gentrification. But in Santa Clara, we never had those conversations. Mm-hmm. And also in Santa Clara, there's a lot of Asians. So it's like primarily Asians. I like rarely saw white people or interacted with white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that kind of changes things a little bit when the gentrifiers are actually people who look like you. You're like, oh, yeah, that's my friend. And then they're building these new apartment complexes and houses. Um, and every time I go back home to visit, there's always a new building. Like they've taken out the shopping malls and they put in a new building. The mall that I used to go to to as a child now has like Prada, like all the high end stores. I can't afford anything there anymore. And that's funny. When yeah. That you know, I'm a card carrying gentrifier here. If, if for no other reason that I moved in and I'm mm-hmm. one of the people increasing the, the, the demand. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but back home, having grown up in a place that's being gentrified and having mm-hmm. grown up in a, frankly, a blue collar uh, environment, you, you come to realize that the changes in a city mm-hmm. uh, are not necessarily based on any individual's agency or any individual's even decisions, right? Yeah. It's this aggregated monster that nobody really has any control over except for maybe or, you know, organizers and the, the local government. But even then, they're kind of hanging on like a like a cowboy at a rodeo, right? Like yeah. Thrown <laughs> off, right? Um, and so, okay, so you say Asian, you mean South Asian uh, predominantly? Um, South Asian and East Asian, but okay. I come from a, a South Asian background. Um, huge Muslim community in the Bay Area, uh, a lot of tech, that's what my dad does. And so I kind of... Grew up in a little bubble. Um, my mom homeschooled me until I was around 12 years old. And she she was originally from India. She came here when she was 18. Just a fun fact, we went to the same community college. We got the same degree in psychology. But anyway, she, she homeschooled me and she also homeschooled my siblings. I have two younger siblings. And she did that because she didn't want us to assimilate into Western culture. And she wanted to kind of protect us from all the things that were out there, from from boys, from drinking, drugs, like all the things that she had in her mind, like all these bad things out there. She wanted to protect us from that. So we were homeschooled. She would kind of monitor did our... You, did, did you push back? Was that, was that a, co- a conflict point in the family? No. We were, we were pretty obedient children. Okay. Yeah. We Where's, were kind that? Of... Where's that person now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up to become something else. But we were kind of okay with that. We liked staying with our mom. You know, it was just me and my sister for a while. And then my brother, he came in uh, seven years later. But it would just be us. And we kind of had fun. You know, we got to sleep in, hang out in our pajamas all day. Um, but she would teach us all the curriculum and then all our social media. Like, we didn't even know social media then. But, like, our... DVDs, our books, everything was like monitored. Um, and so blowing up over there. Yeah. So everything was like pretty much monitored. So I had no idea who the president was. I had no idea what 9-11 was. Whoa. Uh, I know. But every time we went outside, like to the grocery store, and I remember I would like step away from my mom. I didn't want to be standing next to her because she wears a baya, the long dress, and she wears a hijab. So she's a very like you can tell she's Muslim. She's very visibly Muslim. Um, and I would always remember speaking very quietly in Urdu, which is our our mother tongue, and I can barely speak it now because I stopped talking in Urdu. Does that give you any regret? Yeah, it does. I, I wish I held on to that a little bit more. And now when I talk in Urdu, I sound whitewashed, and everyone kind of just oh, you're so cute. I <laughs> look at you. But I remember you know, being ashamed of that, not understanding why or knowing why. And then I remember when we were driving, you know, if my mom was driving, people would give us a finger or say stuff to us. And I had no idea, you know, why are they doing that? But I just knew that something about how we looked was not okay. And I was always ashamed of that. Um, And another thing my mom did to help us preserve our culture was she would always just have like our own cultural clothing in our house. I'd only wear like Indian and Pakistani outfits. I'd never wear like shirt pants ever. 
literally never not even pajamas those were like kind of like Indian pajamas and stuff so I never was fully assimilated into American culture but I just knew that there were some things going on I had no idea what it was I didn't have a name for it um, and then I remember one time my whole family were driving and it was in Ramadan we we're gonna go break our fast and there was this big truck driving next to us and they started cussing at us it was stuff that I've seen before but then this time they started veering their truck closer to our car and we were in a small car um, and they kept trying to come closer and closer and I told my dad you know maybe we should call the police it looks like they're trying to like push us off the road or something and he said no we're not going to call the police because they're not on our side and from there another layer was added to that that people are not here to like protect us we're not super welcome in this country um and then I also remember in my mosque it would be undercover FBI agents and also like and neighbors be, what like the mid 2000s 05 06 right around that time yeah and still, I had no idea about 9-11. I'd seen images of it, but I had no idea. Like, the context was just missing for me. Awesome. Yeah, so I was just kind of living, um, doing things, you know. I remember in the apartment complex I lived in, every single kid, they all went to public school. Every one of us would kind of come together at the end of the day. Whenever they'd come home from school and do their homework, I'd wait for them to come out and play. And I was kind of like the, the ringleader, and we'd all go out in our scooters. And everyone was Muslim? Are they no, no. And they're just diverse group of kids from all backgrounds. Um, but we would always just go out and play and we'd play until our parents, you know, forced us to come back in. That was kind of my life, you know, being in that apartment complex, being homeschooled, you know, the little fun shenanigans. I, I was a big trickster. All my tutors that my mom would bring for me, they would quit because I'd do like fart pillows. <laughs> just super immature. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So is that is that fart pillow mentality kind of what's guiding your activism now in Seattle is that mm, I think I lost that a little bit along the way somewhere um so when I was uh 12 years old I went into a small tiny like super tiny private uh, Muslim school and again this was kind of my mom's way of like keeping me in that like circle in the Muslim community around people of color and kind of preserving that um and I started going there and that was kind of like my exposure into the mainstream you know into pop culture and all of that like that was when I kind of heard American music for the first time like and then you know learning about YouTube it was so weird like I was really behind like on the ball but I was figuring things out and then I got bullied for the whole time that I was there because I was like the weird kid that didn't understand any of the puns I didn't understand any of the jokes what was this like was inside the community of Islam mm -hmm. so it's such a funny thing you know I'll tell you that I experienced very similarly in Latin culture mm -hmm. where when you're outside you're the brown kid and it's very easy my, my nickname in college was Martinez oh my god because they couldn't think of anything more original, you know. When you're in the culture, sometimes you feel very whitewashed and very anglicized. And, you know, my nickname was Gringo growing up, mm -hmm. you know, which means like white. Right. right. Yeah. There's a there's a one of my previous guests, you know, he, he talked about how it's very human to create in groups and out groups. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how a single person can be both in and out depending on the situation. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was interesting because it wasn't kind of like what you just described, but it was more like I was just too not assimilated to be part of their group. I didn't wear the clothes they wore. And that was kind of when I started resisting and time. I'm like, hey, I need to buy the clothes that they're wearing. I don't want to wear, you know, Indian clothes anymore to school. I don't want to wear it outside anymore. It's hard for me to ride my bike with it. I'd always have to tie it up and go. But that was kind of a little tension when I was like, no, I'm actually going to start, you know, eating with a fork instead of my hand and I'm going to start changing my clothes and listening to music and going on YouTube and like getting more involved, I guess, in the mainstream. Um, and then from there, I entered into ninth grade. I remember I went to a charter school and this was a brand new school brand new kind of school there was pretty experimental and again it was like half the students there were like from the Muslim community and my mom was still like I really don't want you to go into the mainstream so I'm going to try to keep you in as as much as possible and that was kind of my first time 
interacting, I guess, with like the larger mainstream to a certain extent. Um, Non-Muslim students. Yeah, non-Muslim students, I guess. And I guess it was just a weird environment because there was so much sexual harassment and sexual violence there. And it was just normal. And prior to this, I had been told, you know, don't talk to boys, you know, don't, you know, don't interact with them. That's kind of what I was told. And now I'm going into a a space where this kind of interaction is normal. It's, you know, how everyone is. And so I didn't really know what the norms were, what to expect, what are boundaries. And so when when guys were inappropriate, I thought, oh, that's just how girls and guys are, you know? Mm. Um, So I don't... You're getting, you're kind of late to the game anyway. Yeah. Getting socialized in this really not healthy way now. Yeah. And and this is occurring um, both inside and outside of the uh, Muslim students. It's like everyone. It's everyone. It's an epidemic, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so they would call me big tits. They'd call me ho Jobby. Um, yeah, I know. Everyone had like some kind of weird sexual nickname. The teachers would be ranked based on their boob size. It was horrific kind of stuff. And I thought, you know, this is normal. So for a long time, I mean, I was only there for a year, thank God. But for that whole duration, I was like, these are normal interactions. And I kind of accepted that as like, this is how things are. And I never said, you know, what the hell, you know? Mm. So that was ninth grade. Then I went to, finally went to public school uh, for 10th grade. Um, And that was kind of when I started realizing, oh, actually that interaction was very different from what I'm experiencing now. And it was less, I guess, sexually inappropriate. Sure. Um, Less transgressive. I mean, so my question for you is how does that now take that now you're here, mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, one of the reasons I have you on is because you've done so much great work, not only with the Muslim Students Association, but also with uh, the gender justice work that you're doing. And so I'm now hearing you say this, and I'm wondering how much of that is, is dialing into what you're doing now. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it for me was all those experiences. And because they're also different and unique, and I don't know how many people had that background of like not knowing who their president was for like most of their childhood. I think a lot of that helped me kind of get exposed really fast because from ninth grade onwards, it was like a lot of things that I was picking up. I finally found out what 9-11 was. I found out, you know, this is Islamophobia. This is racism. This is sexism. This is sexual violence. Those were all terms that I was starting to learn and understand. And then 11th and 12th grade, I did middle college, which is a dual enrollment program. So I was doing high school and community college together and that kind of pushed me out of that immature like high school zone and more into like the college zone where I could learn I guess at a faster rate Um, and I was very independent from a young age so it was a really good program that helped me kind of develop and get to where I am right now Um, and then I think coming to Seattle was kind of a big turning point for me because it was leaving this community that I was kind of growing up in a little bubble you know in terms of Santa Clara you know not having a lot of organizing circles not having a lot of conversations about these issues um But I think all those experiences, they were already there. I just didn't have words for them. And so when I came here as a sociology major, those were the things I was studying in class, you know, double consciousness, all those like kind of more academic terms. Those were things I was like, oh, that's actually my life. You know, I've been living under those circumstances for a long time. So it really helped me, I guess, put everything into perspective and in context. Um, And I'm a very action oriented person. And so when I was here, I was like, you know, we need to do something about it. And I think the position that I'm in, in terms of having this understanding of being in this community and then being outside this community, I feel like that puts me in a good position to actually do some work. Because in the Muslim community itself, we have a lot of issues. Like we're still, in, we're, we're still dealing with like sexism, racism, all these issues. And then on the on the flip side, you're dealing with Islamophobia, and that's where it gets really nuanced and tricky. Because do I call out the patriarchy or do I call out you know the Islamophobes? And if I call the patriarchy, I'm giving something for the Islamophobes. Like oh well, we were right. You know, you are like this as a group. So it's kind of a, a position that a lot of sure. Muslim women are placed in, and it's really hard. And it's not just Muslim women, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's women of color everywhere. Yeah. Across every environment. Um, 
and it's it's funny you know you say the word call out and I know you mean it I think I'm tracking to exactly how you mean it but what I find interesting about your work mm-hmm. both in terms of the events that you're doing but even just your you know social media presence right mm-hmm. I don't see you as call out oriented I see you as action oriented and like you you know you've got I know um, an allyship training mm-hmm. right and I and I do think a lot of um, I think call-outs are necessary and proper uh, in the right environment, in the mm-hmm. right context. But so much of the social justice community degrades itself by by racing to call out as quickly as possible, right? Yeah. And I, and I love that, you know, so now you're using your energy and you're saying, in a sense, um, when so many people say it's not my job, you're saying, no, it is my job. And you're actually putting your money where your mouth is and you're leading an allyship seminar. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So the workshop that I facilitate is called the Allyship in the Age of Islamophobia Workshop. And part of why that came about was because so many people came to the MSA and they were asking us, how can we support you? How can we help you? And this was after you know the election and a lot of people really wanted to help. And it was kind of refreshing to have that, you know, because we were used to people like, you know, saying Islamophobic things all the time. So it was nice to see that. Um, And my friends and I, we put together this workshop and we've been doing it um, since last year. It's been really positive. We talk about uh, bystander intervention. We talk about the basics of Islam, you know, because there's so many things that people uh, don't know about. And there's so many things that we've kind of mystified. There's like a lot of fear mongering. So we talk about, you know, what's common terminology that Muslim people use. Like when I say Allahu Akbar, it's it's not a terrorist cry or something like it's been depicted in movies. Um, And then we also talk about other ways that people can support the Muslim community accessibility needs, for example. And people never really think of accessibility needs for the Muslim community in that context. Um, But thinking about, you know, there are certain foods we can eat, there are certain spaces that we need for prayer. Um, There are certain times like on Friday prayer, for example, like maybe if you're hosting an event, you know, don't have it at that time if you want to accommodate the community. So we talk about those things as well. And then we end with a list of action items for people to actually go out and do something. and one of the action items we try to talk about is the Islamophobia industry. And this is something that I've been wanting to do like a workshop in itself on because it's such a big thing. Um, Stepping back. So Islamophobia industry. Yeah. Tell me, tell me what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? It's a $205 million evaluation. Um, this is taken from all the IRS tax returns of Islamophobic organizations. There are 74 active right now. And CARE, which is a Council on American Islamic Relations, tracks them. And then there's also the UC Berkeley uh, Center for Race. They work in collaboration with CARE to kind of have annual reports. Um, they're looking at legislation. They're looking at things like zoning laws, which is not something that we think would be Islamophobic, but how legislators have used zoning laws to block mosques, those kind of things. Zoning is fundamentally racist. Right. Across almost. Yeah. But, but, but just to return, so how, how does someone profit how does someone make money literal mm-hmm. profit from islamophobia i don't know if you've heard of organizations like jihad watch um there's bare naked islam there's like a lot of them um some of them are like news outlets and they're making money off of like mostly like journalistic things books there's one I see. they sell ad space they yeah space. and this is an endeavor this is a profitable endeavor. yeah and there's one organization i think they're like they're called anti-care or something and they have like wall clocks and mugs and t-shirts so they're they're pretty active and for a long time i had this notion that you know, this must be someone in their basement that's just doing this for, you know, just because they have nothing better to do. And then I realized, wait, no, they're actually making real money off of this millions of dollars. Um, and so that was pretty like alarming for me. And it was a wake up call for me. And, you know, also thinking about things like Muslim free businesses, um, they're making profit, you know, people are coming to them specifically for that reason. We're looking at politics. I mean, Donald Trump basically used this for his whole election campaign. So it's kind of everywhere, basically. And But you're encouraged, you said a little bit, by the attendance and the, and the participation mm-hmm. in your workshops. Yes. 
I think there's a tendency among a lot of liberals to say, okay, I went to a, an Islamophobia yeah. workshop. Um, great. And this is the sound of me patting myself. On yeah. The back. No, and, and I don't, and again, I think call out can be a waste of time sometimes, but mm-hmm. what's that next step? You know, what is the thing we spoke right at the beginning of our conversation today about, you know, how gentrification, it's almost like not a personal act, you know, it's this beast that, mm-hmm. well, with respect to Islamophobia and, and especially as manifested here in Seattle, mm-hmm. in this community, mm-hmm. you know, so, okay, good liberal goes to the workshop. What's the next level up that policy shift or that culture shift mm-hmm. that needs to happen? I think a lot of it starts with the self. We always talk about allyship as something that, oh, I can do this. So I can call you out and I can tell you not to do this. But we need to think about our own internalized oppressions and all the harmful ideologies that we have. And I'm always constantly thinking about this for myself in the work that I'm doing. Because at the end of the day, if you don't leave this mindset that we're kind of brainwashed into and surrounded by, you're going to be reproducing harm. So that's one thing I encourage everyone to start themselves. Accountability, all of that starts with yourself. The next thing is talking about taking all this stuff that people learn to their communities. You know, go to your family. Those are the people that are going to listen to you. If someone who has privilege talks to someone else with privilege, they're more likely to listen than if I come up to them and, you know, start telling them. So we kind of ask everyone who comes to our workshop to spread this message to others and to also take action when they see something happening. Um, And even with that, you know, see something, say something. There's so many intricacies within that. You know, what if someone's undocumented and you just call the police? Or what if the police is going to cause additional harm? So we talk about other options for the see something, say something portion of our workshop. And then we provide them with tools. So there's actually a really cool um, graphic that a Muslim artist made after, I think after the elections also, that kind of went viral. And it was talking about, you know, if you see some person coming up to some other person saying Islamophobic things, you don't necessarily have to go up to the attacker, put yourself in harm's way and get hurt. Because I think a lot of people have that notion that, oh, I have to go to them, put myself in danger. We don't want other people to get hurt as well. So the the thing that it shows is the person is being attacked verbally. Um, and then the bystander comes in and sits with the person who's being attacked. They start talking, having a conversation, you know, how's your day? How's the weather? Ignoring the person who's saying mm, these yeah, things. And that's a good way to just ice them out, like make sure they have no effect. But there's different strategies that you can use in terms of bystander intervention without putting yourself in harm's way. So we try to talk about all those options as well for people to take action. And okay, so the next step to me though is how do you cut that off at the pass, right? Mm-hmm. So what are what are the steps that we can take to make sure that that bystander doesn't have to take action mm-hmm. the next time? Because yeah. there's so many screaming obscenities and physically threatening our Muslim neighbors. Mm-hmm. I think that comes with conversations. It's a culture shift. Um, we just had Meet a Muslim uh, this last weekend, you know, the weekend of the Women's March. And a lot of people had questions. And some of them were questions that I was like, I would never, you know, think of something like that. But they, there's all these things that people have in their heads of fear mongering. And it's kind of everywhere. And if the only image that you're seeing of Muslims are negative images, mm-hmm. then there's nothing else for you to kind of go off of. Um, and some studies have shown that like 70% of Americans have never met a Muslim before. And that's, I'm assuming it's because they're only looking for visible Muslims. But they haven't really had any interaction with the community. There's a lot of bad you know notions that they have there's a lot of fear-mongering um, so I think it really starts with the culture shift is like with the conversations is getting people engaged with these dialogues and also not being afraid because I think in Seattle as you mentioned there's call-out culture here is huge like call-out politics all of that like purity politics when I first came here I was so scared to like ever speak in a any kind of like organizing circle because I was like, oh, I don't have all the language. I don't have all the tools. You know, I might say someone, I might say the wrong pronouns because this is also the first time I learned about pronouns. So it, there was a lot of fear for me to even speak up and ask questions or engage. I or everyone coming in, you know, any given person, I shouldn't say everyone, mm-hmm. but anyone coming in to the progressive community or the activist community, you know, so, so my teeth were cut in a very different environment. So mm-hmm. I, I worked in 
actual campaign organizing, mm-hmm. like electoral. I should right, say. right, that, right. A campaign. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the electoral campaign organizing, and specifically for the first um, Obama presidential campaign. Mm-hmm which had a very different sense and definition of inclusion. Mm-hmm. I think radical inclusion, as envisioned in Seattle politics, tends to revolve around uh, a very narrow definition. Mm-hmm. But in an electoral campaign, you have to be, in the most literal sense, inclusive. Yes. Because everyone you send out the door is a vote for the other guy or gal or whatever it yeah. is, right? And so th- there's a, a little more tolerance for deviation from like the playbook, mm-hmm. as long as the person and this is a dirt, also a dirty word, I think, but the, as long as the person comes with good intentions. Right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I really admire about the work that you're doing is I see you recognizing intentions, but then actually grappling with them and trying to turn them into outcomes, right? Yeah. It can't be all intentions. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's really hard to find that balance. And it took me a long time and a lot of frustrations because there there's a lot of microaggressions that I deal with on a daily basis. You know, people yelling Islamophobic things at me or just asking me questions. You know, I'm in the bathroom washing my hands and someone comes up to me like, oh, do you get to choose who you marry? Um, and I think, you know, part of it is like the way people ask me the questions that I was like, you know, we could reframe this question and it could be completely respectful and genuine. And I'm willing to answer that. Of course. So I think... Yeah, there's a lot of frustrations. I think there's a lot of well-intentioned people that are coming in, but then cause harm. And we've had some people come into our workshops and just start crying because they realize, you know, I did all these things. Mm-hmm. And then it ends up like, I'm comforting you now. So I think to think about like the accountability scale, do you want to be, a, you don't want to be at zero, but you also don't want to be at a thousand. You know, you want to be at like a, a six or a 10, you know, somewhere where it's reasonable and you're not like, I hate myself or, you know, putting a burden on someone else. So you're giving folks the tools, right? That mm-hmm. maybe some of them don't have. Yeah. To, you know, privilege is a bitch, right? <laughs> privilege effectively blinds people mm-hmm. to the ways in which they are privileged. That's yes. The, that's the little knot that they're in, right? So you're helping them cut that knot. And that's it's really helpful. Yeah. Um, I wanted to bring it around to the Gender Justice Center mm-hmm. and how that connects, if at all, to the work you're doing with Muslim Students mm-hmm. Association and, and just kind of where you, you know, where do you see it going mm-hmm. in, in the near future? Yeah, I think all of this work is connected. I've always been a big picture person and also thinking about how our liberations are bound together. It's really frustrating when, you know, when movements leave people out and there's equality, but it comes with exceptions. And so part of the work at the Gender Justice Center, it's a student-led organization. Um, they started last year and we have an official space and everything. So it's been really nice to have them in the community. And we focus on catering to the needs of trans people, gender non-conforming people and women. Um, and then specifically trying to focus on people of color as well because of all the intersectionality. And in everything that we do, we try to keep that as a focal point, that intersectionality piece, but also thinking about creating a space that is liberating um, as opposed to I guess a safe space and tell me more what do you mean yeah um, because we have these safe space stickers like you know we're going to call the police if we see a crime whatever or you know this is a friendly space for you and we have this notion that you're going to come into this safe space this zone is safe for you um, and then after you're you know, you're done here, you're going to go back out into the society that's harming you. It doesn't really change anything that's going on. You know, you have like a little safe spot to be in, but then you're kind of going back into the society that's harming you. So we were thinking about then, like, why don't we create a liberating space where you can be yourself and where we can work on undoing our own internalized oppressions and do a lot of critical thinking around that? Because I think at the end of the day, all of this starts with ourselves. You know, we can't go out and tell people, like, you need to do this or you need to do that. Like, I, I've never been one to go and tell someone what to do um, because I think that just... 
that has to be your own your own work. Um, so we try to create a space that's liberating, a space where people who don't have all the terminology or all the language can come in and find a space where they can learn um, and also have dialogue and engage with these subjects. Because I think so much of these words like, you know, double consciousness, neoliberalism, they're all very academic and a lot of jargon. They're hard to follow. They're not accessible. I don't necessarily even think that people know what they mean in many cases. Yeah. Yeah. And they're they're not accessible at all. And the only reason why I know is because I'm a sociology major and I study this. Right. So just thinking about, you know, someone who's coming from a business background, how do we get them engaged? Because they are also part of the solution and we need to make sure that everyone is involved in this movement. It's not just all the people in social sciences that are doing this work or, you know, only the people of color. It needs to be everyone. And so we focus on creating a space where people can feel that energy and feel comforted and and be there and start doing their own work. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic. You guys got anything coming up? Yes, we're hosting a Queer queer Bodies, Queer Self. Um, it's a sex education workshop that's not oriented to the usual heteronormative ideology, and it's in collaboration with the Seattle Non-Binary Collective. Um, we're also having... When is that? That is next Thursday from 6.30 to 8. Okay. And then the week after that, on Friday, on February 9th, we're having makeovers for gender non-conforming and trans people um, and there's a really cool woman of color, trans woman of color, and she's on. She's a trans activist, and she does a lot of YouTube stuff and makeup. So she's coming in to kind of do the makeup for everyone. So just like giving people a day to pamper themselves and enjoy themselves and celebrate themselves. That's awesome. And yeah. how can people find out more about that? We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Gender Justice SU. You know, we end every show with our segment. If you care about, you should mm-hmm. fill in the blanks. If you care about equality without exception, you should start by unlearning, relearning, and learning. Okay. Hey, thank you, Halima, so much. This has been Halima Barucha. It's been awesome to have you, and hopefully we'll stay in touch. Yeah, thank you for having me. So there you have it, folks. That was Halima Barucha. Check out her allyship in the Time of Islamophobia workshop in the Gender Justice Center at Seattle U. This has been UpZones. Today's sponsor was Horizon Books in Capitol Hill. Mention UpZones at the register for a 10% discount. All music by the subcon. Opening poem segment courtesy of Anthony McPherson. Thanks to Abigail Wharton, Dave DeLuca, Amira James, and Rod West for reminding us that things are changing. Thanks to our producers Brandon and Nabu. I'm your host, Ian Martinez. This has been a Cascadia Underground production. See you next week. My favorite.